0: Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Chapter 14, Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, The Legend of the Temple. From this account of the exploits of Abraham and his pupil Euclid and of the invention of geometry, or Freemasonry, in Egypt, The legend of the craft proceeds, by a rapid stride, to the story of the introduction of the art into Judea, or as it is called in all of them, the land of behest or the land of promise. Here it is said to have been principally used by King Solomon in the construction of the temple at Jerusalem. The general details connected with the building of this edifice and the help given to the king of Israel by Hiram, king of Tyre are told with sufficient historical accuracy and were probably taken either directly or at second hand through the Polychronicon from the First Book of Kings, which in fact is referred to in all the manuscripts as a source of information. The belief that Freemasonry as it now exists was organized at the Temple of Solomon, although almost everywhere accepted by Freemasons who have not made the subject a historical study, but who get their ideas of the institution from the mythical teachings of the ritual, has been utterly cast aside by the greater part of the recent school of impartial students who search through the records and traditions of Freemasonry by the same methods which they would use in dealing fairly and freely with any other historical matter. The fact, however, Remains that in the legend of the craft, the temple is directly and definitely referred to as a place where Masons met in great numbers, and where Masonry was confirmed or established, and from where it traveled into other countries. If the legend of the craft be read as merely a record of the rise and progress of architecture and its connection with a peculiar architectural association... It was natural that in such a story some reference should be made to one of the most splendid specimens of the ancient building art that the world of old had exhibited. And since this temple was, by its leading place in the ritual of Jewish worship, closely connected with both the Jewish and Christian religions, we shall be still less surprised that an association not only so religious, but even so allied with the Church, as was the Freemasonry of the Middle Ages, should have treasured and loved this sacred building as one of its cradles of its institution. Therefore, we find the Temple of Jerusalem occupying a place in the legend of the craft, which it has retained with many additions to the present day. But there is a difference in the aspect in which this subject of the Temple is to be viewed, as we follow the progress of the order and its change from an operative to a speculative institution. First referred to by the legendists as a purely historical fact, whose details were taken from scripture and connected by a sort of family relationship with the progress of their own association, it was retained during and after the growth of the order into the speculative character. This for the reason that it seemed to be the very best foundation on which the religious symbolism of that order could be erected. In spite of the fact that the very many members of the institution, learned as well as unlearned, continue to accept the historical character of this part of the legend, the temple is chiefly to be considered from a symbolical point of view. It is in this aspect that we ought to regard it, and in doing so we shall free the legend from another charge of absurdity. It is true that we are unable now to know how much of true history and how much of symbolism were thought out by the writers of the legend when they put the Temple of Jerusalem into that document as a part of their traditional story. But there is a doubt, and we must admit that we cannot now positively assert that the Freemasons of the Middle Ages had not some impression of a symbolic idea when they put it into their history. The temple might, indeed, from its leading place in the ritual, be almost called the basic symbol of speculative Freemasonry. The whole system of Masonic symbolism is not only founded on the Temple of Jerusalem, but the temple idea so thoroughly spreads within and around it that a sure connection is closely made. So that if the temple symbol was wiped out entirely from the system of Freemasonry, if that system were purged of all the legends and myths that refer to the building of the Solomonic Temple and to the events that are supposed to have then and there occurred, we should have nothing remaining by which to see and to know speculative Freemasonry as the successor of the operative system of the Middle Ages. The history of the Roman Empire, with no account of Julius Caesar or of Pompey, or of that of the Re- French Revolution with no allusion to Louis XVI, or to Robespierre, would present just as disfigured a story as Freemasonry would, were all reference to the Temple of Solomon left out. Knowing then the importance of this symbol, it is proper and it will be interesting to trace it back through the various specimens of the legend of the craft contained in the old constitutions, because it is to that legend that modern Freemasonry owes the suggestion at least, if not the present arrangement and the terms in use for this important symbol. In the oldest constitution that we have, the one known as the Hallowell Manuscript, whose date is supposed not to be later than the end of the 14th century, there is not the least mention of the Temple of Solomon, which is another reason why we may fairly give to that document an origin different from that of the other and later manuscripts. The word temple occurs but once in the entire poem, and then it is used to refer to a Christian church or place of worship. But in the Cook Manuscript, Britain, as it is estimated, about a century afterward, there are ample references to the Solomonic Temple, and the statement made in The Legend of the Craft is for the first time set forth. After this, there is not a constitution written in which the same story is not repeated. There does not appear in any of them, from the Lansdowne Manuscript to the Papworth, any widening out of the tale or any growth of the occurrences, Each of them spreads out the story in many words, and in almost the same words, upon the Temple of Solomon as connected with Masonry, and gives through details of the construction of the edifice, of the number of Masons employed, of how they were occupied in performing other works of Masonry, and finally, how one of them left Jerusalem and took the art into other countries. We thus see that up to the end of the 17th century, the legend of the craft and all its essential details continued to be accepted as traditionary history. At the beginning of the 18th century, the legend began to show a nearer likeness to its present form. The document already referred to as the Krauss Manuscript, and which Dr. Krauss too hastily supposed was a copy of the original York Constitutions of 926, is really a production of the early part of the 18th century. In this document, the legend is given in the following words. Although, by architecture great and excellent buildings had already been everywhere constructed, They all remained far behind the holy temple, which the wise King Solomon caused to be erected in Jerusalem to the honor of the true God, where he employed an uncommonly large number of workmen, as we find in the holy scriptures, and King Hiram of Tyre also added a number to them. Among these assistants who were sent was King Hiram's most skillful architect, a widow's son, whose name was Hiram Abiff, and who afterwards made the most exquisite arrangements and furnished the most costly works all of which are described in the Holy Scriptures. The whole of these workmen were, with King Solomon's approval, divided into certain classes, and thus, at this great building, was first founded a worthy society of architects. Whether the author of the Krauss manuscript had copied from Anderson, or Anderson from him, or both have borrowed from some other document which is no longer to be found, is a question that has already been discussed. But the description of the temple and its connection with the history of masonry are given by Dr. Anderson with much of the features of the Krauss form of the legend, except that the details are more ample. Now what was taught concerning the temple by Anderson and his history contained in the first edition of the Constitutions, although afterward polished and perfected by Preston and other ritual makers, is about the same as that which was taught at the present day in all lodges. Thus, notwithstanding that the Dr. Krauss claims that the Temple of Solomon is no symbol, certainly not a prominent one of the English system, we are surely led to believe that it was one of the prominent symbols that is mentioned in this old legend. It is further conclusive that the symbol of the temple upon which so much of the symbolism of modern and speculative Freemasonry depends was, in fact, suggested to the revivalists of 1717 and later by the story contained in The Legend of the Craft. Whether the operative Freemasons of the Middle Ages, who seemed to have accepted this legend as reliable and accredited history, had also, underlying the story, a symbolic explanation of the temple, and of certain incidents that are said to have occurred in the course of its erection, as referring to this life and the resurrection to a future one, or whether that meaning was in existence at the time when the legend of the craft was invented, and was later on lost sight of, only to be recovered in the beginning of the 18th century, are questions that will be more properly discussed in this work when the subject of the myths and symbols of Freemasonry is under consideration. It is evident that between the story and the legend concerning the temple with its three builders, the kings of Israel and Tyre and Solomon's master of the works, and the symbolism of modern speculative Freemasonry in reference to the same building and the same persons, there has been a close union. Again, we find that the legend of the craft is of value in reference to the light which it throws on the progress of Masonic science and symbolism, which otherwise it would not possess, if it were to be received as a mere mythical tale without any bearing on history. It will be necessary before we leave this matter to refer to the name of the chief builder of the temple, and whose name has been subject to the variety and neglect in copying into all the manuscripts to which all proper names have been treated in these documents. Of course, it is known, from the testimony of the scripture, that the real name and title of this person, as used in reference to King Solomon and himself, was Hiram Abiff, that is, his father Hiram. This Hebrew title is found for the first time in Masonic documents in Anderson's Constitutions and in the Krauss Manuscript, both being of the date of the early part of the 18th century. Previous to that period, we find this person variously called in all the old manuscripts, from the Dowland to the Anak, Ammon, Ammon, anyone, Anon, Anon, and Ajuan. Now of what word are these a corruption? The Cook manuscript does not give any name, but only says that the king's son of Tyre was Solomon's master mason. All the other and succeeding manuscripts, without exception, admit this relation. Thus the Dowland, in which it is followed by all the others, says that King Hiram had a son that was named Anon, And he was a master of geometry and was chief master of all Solomon's masons. The idea was thus established that this man was of royal rank, the son of a king, and that he was also a ruler of the craft. Now, the Hebrew word Adon denotes a lord, a prince, a ruler, or master, it is, in short, a title of dignity. In the Book of Kings, we meet with Adoniram, who was one of the principal officers of King Solomon, and who, during the construction of the temple, performed an important part as the chief or superintendent of the levy of 30,000 laborers who worked on Mount Lebanon. The old Freemasons may have mixed up this person with Hiram from the likeness of the syllables ending these names. The modern continental Freemasons made the same error when they got up the rite of Adoniram or Adoniram and gave to Hiram Abiff the title of Adon Hiram, meaning the Lord or Master Hiram. If the old Freemasons did this, then it is evident that they cut short the full name and called him Adon. We are more inclined to believe that the author of the first or original old manuscript, of which all the rest are copies, called the chief builder of Solomon Adon, Lord and Master, in allusion to his supposed princely rank and his high position as the chief builder or master of the works at the temple. However, the change from Adon to Anon or Amon, or even Ajuan, is not greater than what occurs in other names in these manuscripts, as where Hermes is altered into Hermerenes and Euclid to Englet. Indeed, the copyists of these old documents appear to have had a great readiness for spoiling the spelling of all foreign names, very often almost totally destroying their resemblance. For the real meaning of Hiram Abiff, either as a historic or symbolic character, that topic will be thoroughly examined in another part of this work when the subject of Masonic symbols comes to be considered. The topic of the corruption of the name in the old manuscripts, and its true signification, will again be treated when we look into the legend of Hiram Abiff. The legend of the temple could not be properly completed without a reference to Solomon, king of Israel, and some inquiry as to what he became indebted for the important place he has held in the Freemasonry of the Middle Ages. The popularity of King Solomon among the Eastern nations is a familiar fact known not only to all Oriental scholars, but even to those whose knowledge of the subject is confined to what they have learned from their youthful reading of the Arabian Nights' entertainments. Among the Arabians and the Persians, the king of Israel was esteemed as a great magician, whose power over the genie and other supernatural beings was derived from his possession of the omnific name and all-powerful word, by the use of which he did all his wonderful works, the said name being inscribed on his signet ring." Really, it is not strange, seeing the travel which took place between the East and West before and after the Crusades, that the wise son of David should have enjoyed a great popularity among the poets and romancers of the Middle Ages. It must be noted that the fame he enjoys among them is not that of a great magician, so much as that of a learned philosopher. Whenever a Norman romancer or a provincial minstrel composed a religious morality, a pious declamation or a popular proverb, it was the name of Solomon that was often selected to point the moral or adorn the tale. The Eastern storytellers, whose tendencies were always towards the mystical, were unlike the writers of the Middle Ages who most probably got their opinion of the King of Israel from the account of him and of his writings in the Bible. Now there he is peculiarly well-known as a maker of Proverbs. Proverbs are the earliest outspoken thought of the people, and they lead in every nation all other forms of popular literature. It was therefore to be expected that at the awakening of learning in the Middle Ages, the romancers would be attracted by the proverbial philosophy of King Solomon, rather than by his magical science, on which the Eastern writers of fables had more fondly touched. Legrand d'Arcy, in his valuable work on the fables and romances of the 12th and 13th centuries, gives two interesting specimens from old manuscripts— of the use made by their writers of the traditional fame of King Solomon. First of these is a romance called The Judgment of Solomon. It is something like the Jewish story of the two mothers, but here the persons upon whom the judgment is to be passed are two sons of the prince of Sozon. The claim made to the judge was for an award of some property left by the father. To find out who was better entitled to be considered for the heir, By the respect he might show for the memory of his father, Solomon asked each to prove his skill as a horse soldier by striking at a mark with his lance, and that the mark was to be the body of his dead father. The elder son readily met the condition. The younger one indignantly refused. To the latter, Solomon ordered the property to be given. Now we see here how ready these romancers of the Middle Ages were to invent a story and fit it into the life of their favorite Solomon. The makers of the Masonic legend of the craft, who were of the era of time, promptly followed their example. There is in that legend, as we have seen, some errors in the fitting together of events, but none more absurd than that which makes the sons of a prince of Saison, who could not have been earlier than the time of Clovis in the 6th century, acquaintances of a Jewish monarch living at least 16 centuries before Saison was known as a kingdom. However, it shows us the spirit of the age and how legends were made. We are thus prepared to form a judgment of the Masonic myths. The Middle Ages also credited to King Solomon a very familiar acquaintance with the science of astrology, that ancient study of the influence of the starry world upon the destinies of mankind. In doing so, they by no means borrowed the Oriental idea that he was a great magician. The astrologer of the Middle Ages was deemed a man of learning, just as at this day is the astronomer. Astrology was, in fact, the astronomy of the Middle Ages. Solomon's astrological knowledge was therefore only a part of that great learning for which he had the reputation. In the collection of unpublished fablo et Conte, Fables and Tales, edited by M. Mion, is a poem entitled Le Lunaire que Salemin fist, that is, The Lunary which Solomon made. The lunary or lunarium, was a table made by astrologers to show the influence exerted by the moon on human affairs. This poem, which consists of 910 lines, written in the Old French or Norman language, contains directions for the conduct of life, telling what is to be done or left undone on every day of the month. The concluding lines give, without hesitation, the authorship of this teaching to Solomon, while it pays the following respect to his memory. He resented the lesson made by good King Solomon, to whom in his life God gave riches and honor and learning, more than to any other born or begotten of a woman. In the Bible, the book of Proverbs gave the writers of the Middle Ages occasion to have a high opinion of Solomon as a maker of those pithy sayings, a feature of his genius which the Orientals seem to have overlooked. Among the most remarkable works of the literature of the Middle Ages is a poem of the Comte de Bernton entitled Proverbs of Marcol and Solomon. Marcol is represented as a student, or rather perhaps as a rival of King Solomon. The work is a poem divided into stanzas of six lines each. The first three lines contain a proverb of Solomon, the next three another proverb on the same subject and in response by Marcol. Another poem of the same period is in the collection of Emion, entitled Of Marco and Solomon. The responsive style is the same as that of the Comte de Breton, but the 137 proverbs which it contains are all new. Still, more nearly allied to the present inquiry, is the fact that among the writers of the Middle Ages, Solomon bore the reputation of a workman of highest skill. He was like the Volund or Wieland of the Scandinavian and Teutonic myths, the traditional smith who made the decorations of halls, the gay harness of war horses, and the swords and lances of cavalier. In the poems of the Middle Ages, whenever it becomes necessary to speak of any of these things as having been made with exquisite and surpassing skill, it is said to be the work of Solomon. L'Ove Solomon Enough has been said to show that King Solomon was as familiar to the romancers of the Middle Ages as he was to the Jews of Palestine or to the eastern writers of Arabia and Persia. Philippe d'Etoine, who in the 12th century wrote his bestiary, a sort of idealized natural history, says that by Solomon was meant any wise man. About the same time that these fable makers and songwriters of the 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries were working over these stories about King Solomon, the makers of the Masonic legend of the craft were inventing their myths about the same monarch and the temple which he built. An agreement of time is here that suggests the popularity of King Solomon with the Romancers of the Middle Ages made the use of his name in the Masonic legend less difficult to those who arranged that mythical story. Indeed, we might be led to suspect that the use of Solomon in their legends and traditions was first suggested to the stonemasons and to the Allied trade societies, such as the Compagnons de la Tour, Companions of the Tower of France, from the frequent references to it by the Romancers of that time. The later myths connected with Solomon as the head of the Association of Freemasons at the Temple were, at a much later period, borrowed in great part from the Talmudists and have no place among the songwriters and fable makers of the Middle Ages. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment.